Because how can salt water bubble up from a freshwater spring? If salt water is bubbling up all the time out of your mouth, and that's really what you're speaking all the time, you've got to question what's down in that well. Is it just salt water? You know, you need a filter when you've got salt water down there. That's called a bridling of the tongue, the filter. It's got to go through and turn that salt water into fresh water before it exits the mouth. Because it's not what goes in that corrupts the man, it's what comes out that corrupts the man. So if terrible things come out of your mouth in all forms, if we're swearing, if we're yelling and screaming, if we're being rude and offensive, if we're saying you know, rude jokes, if we're talking badly about people, if we're doing all those things, if that's what bubbles up out of our mouth, then well, we've got to get a filter. We've got to get a filter. We've got to control that. And that's what God's calling us to do. The Word tells us. And if He does not bridle His tongue, He deludes His own heart. So if you're a Christian and that's what's coming out of your mouth, judge by your own fruit. Judge yourself by the fruit that you're producing or the water that's coming out. Is it living water or is it salt water? Is it polluted water? And therefore, if you feel in your heart of hearts, hang on, man, there's some bad stuff coming out of my mouth, then repent. Ask God to deal with what comes up. Ask God to deal with the well. You know what I mean? What's down deep? And say, God, this shouldn't be coming out of my mouth. You know, if your Holy Spirit is abiding in me, if your Holy Spirit is filling me, then I should be bubbling up with the most beautiful sentiments should be coming out of my mouth at all times. That's really what should be coming out of the mouth of Christians. It's been an interesting week, you know, for me. I've um, been extremely busy and uh, I'm sure you've all been the same. Who's, who finds life just busy? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You just sort of go on like from morning to night, morning to night, you just seem to put your head on the pillow and wake up and do it all again and do it all again. Does it get a bit like it's just this thing that's just stuff. nearly out of out of control, Groundhog yeah. Day? Yeah. 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 Anyone who hasn't seen Groundhog Day, you relate to it if you see the movie. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. But um yeah, life is a little bit like that. And and to try to Get a hold of Christ in all that, you know, get a hold of Christ and live for Christ amongst all that busyness is very challenging. Who knows, especially if you're working in a workplace environment and, you know, kids at school and all that sort of thing. It's very hard to stay focused on Christ. It's very hard to stay living for Him in the midst of all that all that um, busyness and all that, you know, like I feel sometimes it's, it's just where we're going at a phenomenal rate. And uh, so it's so important that we, we set aside time in the morning just to spend that time with Christ, isn't it? Yes. It's sort of like slow down heart, slow down mind. Let's get on Christ. Let's get ourselves centered here because you can sort of miss it. You can sort of jump into the busy day and think that's what life's all about. Yes. Who, who knows what I'm talking about? You can think that's it. This is it. This is what I'm here for. I've got to work. I've got to provide for my family. I've got to eat. You know, I've got to do, see this person, I've got to do that person, and that's, that's life. But is it really what we're meant to be doing? And in one way it is, but in another way it isn't. In one way, if we don't do that, before we're not, we're sleeping in the gutter somewhere. But in another way, we've got to find that balance. 
And I can't find the balance for you, but I know in myself I've got to find balance. So what I do is I, I do things like this morning. I, I, I saw that my, my days are getting that, that busy that I, I find it hard to you know, get the quality time with Christ. So I set the time I wrote down. This is the time I'm going to wake every day and straight into prayer because I need that time alone with God before I get into the day. Now, through the day, I pray. Who, who does that? You get moments? Yeah, take moments. Always take those moments. But make sure you do. You find those times. Um, but it's so important to dedicate an hour to, to the Lord and try to do the same as well before you go to bed. Amen. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, was the most busiest man in the whole of Babylon, wasn't he? He was appointed to the highest position in Babylon, second only to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And because of his wisdom and his great, you know, uh, in spiritual insight, he was placed in the most highest position. Now, do you think he was busy? I reckon he'd be busy. He'd be, he's, he's like they're like a prime minister to the queen sort of thing. You know, he's like that busy. That's busy. He'd have been wanted here, there, and everywhere. And guess what? Morning, noon, and night. What did he do? He prayed. He opened his window towards Jerusalem, got down on his knees and prayed. And he gave time to the Lord. Now, it doesn't say he prayed for one hour. It just said that he did that time. He might have gone in there for 10 minutes. But who knows? You can go in and pray for 10 minutes. And who can feel refreshed in 10 minutes of prayer? Yeah? Yeah. You ever had that experience? You just really, your mind scattering, it's racing around in all directions. Just go in, get in, get in, get alone with the Lord. Focus on God. Try to shake all that other stuff off and just focus on God. And it can be amazing. It can really lift you. Uh, by the way, this is not my sermon. So. Um, now, we've just... Remember last week we hit a milestone with the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, we hit 20,000 per month. We just hit 25,900 this week. Oh, wow. So... Something's going crazy in podcast land. You know, the, the sermons are just going out there. We used to be around, you know, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000. All of a sudden, bang. And you see these statistics. There's these graphs. And it's just like, <laughs> like this. And, and uh, so just in the last week, it's another essentially 6,000 more yeah, um, than, than previously. So we're up to 25,900. So keep praying for them because obviously they're not from Adelaide. Because they're not here, rather. <laughs> they're just really lazy. From yeah. Which, if we had a worldwide church and everyone attended, we, you know, it could be a few thousand. But uh, just got to go out four corners of the earth and bring them all here. If that was possible, maybe that could be the rapture we're waiting for. Yeah, bring them all to bless church. That's not it's a silly thing. What I just sort of doctrine is that? Yeah. No. Well, that is the blessed hope. <laughs> blessed hope, church. <laughs> All right, now that's not a doctrine of this church. <laughs> We're going to do the Proverbs of the New Testament, and this is part eight. The text is James one twenty six, and it's not to 27, it's one twenty six <laughs> to chapter 2, verse 7. James one twenty six, and it says, everyone's there, verse 26, and it says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I won't 
start preaching yet. I'll just read on because I want so much to say there. But anyway, chapter 2, it says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? That's jam-packed, isn't it? There's a lot going on. That's why we call it the Proverbs of the New Testament, because there's so much to talk about, which is why we're doing this verse-by-verse study. So let's have a quick overview of chapters, verse 26, religion and speech, true religion, what that is. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4 is don't show favoritism. Verse 5 is the poor and the rich, a comparison. Verse 6, that we have been exploited by the rich. And verse 7 is slandering his name. Okay, that's a, a, a sort of a brief way of understanding what's in each and every verse there. Now let's go to religion and speech. James one we we'll look at the Amplified. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, poiously observing at the external duties of his faith and does not bridle his tongue but deludes his own, but deludes his own heart, this person's religious service is worthless, futile and barren. And now the word religious comes from the Greek word threskos, which means devout and fearing or worshipping God. Fearing and worshipping God. To tremble and to be fearful. So when you say you're religious, you're saying you fear God. You're trembling before a holy, holy God. Amen. That's, that's, that's the essence of the word religious. But then it gives you us a definition of religion and what religion is. And I've mentioned this a number of times in the church, but I believe there's a a common saying in the church that it's not religion, it's relationship. Who's heard that? Right? And they they got that saying because they believed that certain, you know, older denominations are religious in their ceremonial proceedings. Right? Therefore, they... Even though, in my opinion, that's not true religion... They go and say, that is what religion is. Therefore, we're not religious. We have a relationship. Therefore, kicking the word religion out as a bad word, an evil word. Is it a bad word? Is it in the Bible? Yes. It's in the Bible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Does it tell us what true religion is? And it even says down here, it says, and I'll just read it in verse 27. It said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted. So to keep oneself from being polluted by the world is true religion. And therefore people who are anti-holiness will say, well, that's why we're not religious. We have a relationship. Therefore, I don't have to hold to that. I don't have to be holy because that's religious. Does that make sense? And therefore there's this real strong move today against holiness And they call anyone who practices holiness or pushes the the doctrine of holiness 
as legalists. And I, I, I stand opposed to that. Because the Bible, especially the New Testament and the Old Testament, is completely chock-a-block full of exhortation to live a holy life. Just as he who called you is holy, so be in holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. How many holies was that? A whole lot of holies. There was four. Four holies in two verses. Just as he who called you is holy. So, what does it say? Be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy. For I am holy. Four times. Now, how can you read that and go, oh no, well, you know, we're under grace, we don't have to be holy. You know, why are you preaching holiness? Well, it told me to preach it four times <laughs> in two verses. And holiness is all through the New Testament. If, if we are to think ourselves religious, now are we thinking of ourselves as religious? Should we think of ourselves as religious? Yes. We should. We are religious people. We are God-fearing people. Amen. We are to avoid the immoral practices of the world and live morally as our, as our Lord lived morally. Amen. Yes. Isn't that what the Bible tells us repeatedly to do? So we are to be religious. Now, what is religion? Is relationship with a holy God. That is true religion. It's not the opposite. We're not religious. We're relationship. Not religion. Relationship. That's, that's crazy. Religion, true religion is relationship. I'm sort of harking on this because when I, when I come against the doctrine that's so embedded, this doctrine is embedded in, who knows it? Who knows, who's heard it preached in seeker-sensitive churches? It's embedded in the church. Not religion, relationship. Not religion, relationship. They preach it everywhere. I sat under it for years and years and years. And I kept on thinking, how come religion is mentioned in the Bible if we're not to be religious? And you know what? You take religion out, you've taken discipline out of the church as well. Because a religious person is a disciplined person. Amen? Now, if we're going to be disciples, we are to be disciplined ones. That's what disciple means. A disciple is a disciplined one. What's a disciplined one? Someone who does his thing regardless of how he feels. Someone, when they're not feeling that good, still prays. When they're not feeling that good, they still read the Bible. When they don't feel like it, they still do it. They do it because they are religious about it. Amen? You know, if you go to, uh, you know, and I've, I've used this example for those of you, you, you hear me say them over, over and over again, and it's probably good for you to hear them again. But an athlete, when he's considered a good athlete, they'll say he's religious about it. You know, he, he goes out, he does his thing. He goes for his, you know, 10-kilometer run, and then he comes back and he works out at the gym. He's religious. He does it every single day. Rain or shine, he's out there. You know, he's religious. We've got to be religious. We've got to be disciplined people. And that's what the Bible's telling us to do. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and we are to think of ourselves religious, um, and does not bridle his tongue, what does that mean? You can't say whatever you want, guys. Sorry. You can't say it. Just because you're under grace doesn't mean you can swear like a sailor. You know, we've got to control our tongue. We've got to control our tongue. And it's not just in the, in the form of swearing. We're going to find some scriptures here. It's in the form of the types of enga- um, uh, conversations we engage in. You know, types of places that we go when we're talking. You know, it can even be, you know, uh, gossiping and slandering. You know, we... Who falls into that from time to time? Yep. Am I the only one? I'll be honest. I'm not going to stand up here and try to say 
you know, I'm holier than you guys. I'll be honest, sometimes you fall into it. Should we? Absolutely not. No, we should, we should be very careful. And we've got to get more and more careful with what we engage our tongue into. Because how can salt water bubble up from a freshwater spring? If salt water is bubbling up all the time out of your mouth and that's really what you're speaking all the time, you've got to question what's down in that well. Is it just salt water? You know, you need a filter when you've got salt water down there. That's called a bridling of the tongue, the filter. It's got to go through and turn that salt water into fresh water before it exits the mouth. Because it's not what goes in that corrupts the man, it's what comes out that corrupts the man. So if... Terrible things come out of your mouth in all forms. If we're swearing, if we're yelling and screaming, if we're being rude and offensive, if we're saying you know, rude jokes, if we're talking badly about people, if we're doing all those things, if that's what bubbles up out of our mouth, then whoa, we've got to get a filter. We've got to get a filter. We've got to control that. And that's what God's calling us to do. The Word tells us. And if He does not brightly tongue, he deludes his own heart. So if you're a Christian and that's what's coming out of your mouth, judge by your own fruit. Judge yourself by the fruit that you're producing or the water that's coming out. Is it living water or is it salt water? Is it polluted water? And therefore, if you feel in your heart of hearts, hang on, man, there's some bad stuff coming out of my mouth, then repent. Ask God to deal with what comes up. Ask God to deal with the well. You know what I mean? What's down deep? And say, God, this shouldn't be coming out of my mouth. You know? If your Holy Spirit is abiding in me, if your Holy Spirit is filling me, then I should be bubbling up with the most beautiful sentiments should be coming out of my mouth at all times. That's really what should be coming out of the mouth of Christians. And we don't want to delude our heart. And then it says this, this person's religious service is worthless, if that's the case. Do you know what? You, you can meet a theological professor. Someone that knows the Bible better. And like, you know, he could quote just about the whole Bible in, in ancient Greek. And tell you the meaning of every single word. And then in the next breath he could be swearing and cursing and talking bad about his neighbour. And he could be doing all this. And he could be you know, just carrying on like a pork chop and yelling and screaming at his wife. And yelling and screaming at his, his, uh, you know, the support team in his church or whatever. And he could be the most dreadful man to be around. He deludes himself. He's deluded. His religion is worthless. You know, don't just read the word and so deceive yourselves. Where does it say that? Nice. Just here. Yeah. Let's have a look at it. We'll go back. Verse 122. And it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Don't just listen to this thing and get deceived. You know, people say, why is the Christian church in such a mess? I believe it's this, because they listen to the word and they get deceived. Why? Because they don't do what? What it says. They get deceived because they hear it and they become, in their minds, you know, these great minds. I've, I've met Christians and they've been a Christian for a very short time. And they've read a lot, they've got right into it, they've watched a million videos on YouTube and they're really into it. And they're talking to me like they are, you know, at another level. That's why it says don't put these people in positions of, you know, authority in the church because they're conceited. And they fall under the judgment just like the devil. 
And I've met them. They've, you've got to be changed. You've got to be changed. It doesn't matter how much you know. You know, Smith Wigglesworth, who, who's heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Yeah. Very interesting man. You know, I, I like studying the men of old. You know, because there seemed to be a sincerity about their, their religious duties and the, and the things that they did. There seemed to be, it wasn't about becoming a mega church to them. It wasn't about how much money was going to get put in the offering. It was about getting people saved. It was about getting people healed. It was, it was about the right thing. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying, I, I can't be a judge of their life because you only read their biographies and, you know, biographers can, you know, brush, you know, make them sound really good, you know. But I like to think of them as really good, you know, because I get inspired to be like the person they're writing about. And you read about... Smith Wigglesworth. Do you know he, he didn't read a book outside of the Bible? He didn't read any book except the Bible. But the thing was, because he just focused on the Bible, he, he let it change him. And, and there was one man that said that he, he went into a room to pray with Smith Wigglesworth. They were having a prayer time before a service or something. He said Smith Wigglesworth got down on, on his knees and he started to pray. And five minutes went past and not a word was spoken. And then the guy said that, he opened his mouth to start praying and the presence of God fell in that room and the man said he was literally crushed under the weight of the presence of God and he said it was so fearful to be in that room he had to crawl out. He had to literally crawl out, open the door and get out because he was, he was in the presence of a man that knew God. Who wants to know God? <coughs> Who wants to know God? That's what we're here for. We're supposed to know God. Moses could go into the, into the tabernacle and speak to the Lord face to face. Face to face. Who was he speaking to? The Word. He was speaking to the Word because then in the next, uh, just a passage before that, he had just not been allowed and he couldn't look upon the face of God and live. He saw the back of God passing by. So who was that? God the Father. But then a few verses later, he's going into the tabernacle and he's speaking to God face to face. Is that contradiction? He couldn't look upon the face of God and live and then he could speak to God face to face. Is that contradiction in the Bible? Not if you believe in the Trinity. There's a good argument for the Trinity. Anyone has to argue the Trinity from time to time and it's getting more and more, you know... Uh, Prevalent these days, people are fighting against the Trinity. But Jesus Christ, he was, he was spoke to Moses face to face. Do you know you can have that encounter with Jesus Christ too? Each and every one of you can have that encounter with Jesus Christ. You can speak with him face to face. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and what? Seek my face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, there's stage one humble. You know, we have to get humble and pray. Therefore, you've got to start building a relationship. You've got to start communicating. You've got to start giving him a call. You know what I mean? We should have Facebook to Jesus Christ. How many people, if, if Jesus Christ was on Facebook, he'd have a lot of communication these days with a lot of people. But he's not on Facebook, so people don't call him. But are we supposed to spend time with him? We're supposed to go in there and say, that's what Christianity is about. Do you know when people find out you're a Christian, this is what they used to think. Oh, okay, I'm, I, I should be meeting someone right now who has access to the Father through Jesus Christ. I should have 
that this person, if he truly is what he says he is, this person should be able to heal my ailments. Amen? If I'm blind, I should be able to go up to this person and ask him to heal me. And they'll heal me in the name of Jesus Christ. Because if he truly is a disciple, these things shall follow. And so what's happened over the years and since the early church is we've settled for less, settled for less, settled for less, settled for less and gone down to the point where Christianity now is just something we do on Sunday. It's just a hobby. Just a part-time thing. Can't let it get in the way of every all my other busy things in life. We had a wonderful prayer meeting, didn't we? On Wednesday. It was a beautiful prayer meeting. It, it just goes ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. You have these intense moments and then you, you drop down in these quiet times. And we've been having them all along, haven't we, Elizabeth? Elizabeth wasn't there because she couldn't get there on Wednesday. Elizabeth's there every Wednesday. And she and and we've been having wonderful times in the presence of God, haven't we? Yes. Over over the over the last few months. And it's getting more and more intense. And I believe, you know, th- this church will explode if, the, if everyone here gets along. If everyone here commits to it and says, you know what? I'm going to give a little bit more time to my God in this church. Not just Sunday, maybe on a Wednesday as well. Commit to that and then look what, happen- look what will happen. Because every account of revival I've ever read, it always starts with the churches committed to prayer. Always. 100% of the time. There's never a, a anything less than that. If the church doesn't commit to prayer, God can't move. Do you know what I mean? We need to commit. We need God needs to see a bit more if he wants to bless you with the fullness of what he wants to do. He wants to pour out his spirit unlimited on this church. I know it. Anthony had a dream. He saw God's hand is upon, upon you. Was that what it was? He saw a sign and said, God's hand is upon you. That meant everything to me because I've been wrestling. God, is this what you want? Is this where you want us to be? Is this what you want us to be doing? What are we supposed to do? And then God made it very, very clear to me. You meant to pray. And then that weekend, uh, Ben was here and he prayed. What sort of a church doesn't have a prayer meeting? Because we had postponed the prayer meeting for about, I don't know, two months. Because no one was turning up to the prayer meeting. So I didn't have anything left to do except say, well, well, Forget it. Won't do it. I'll save my Wednesday night. And that was just where Satan had me at that time. Do you know what I mean? Satan had so deceived us that he, he took away the importance of the prayer meeting from the church. Because you know, if he, can, if he can shut down the prayer meeting of the church, he's won. If he can stop the church from realising that it's about the church coming together to pray, if he can shut that down, then that's it. He's won. That church will go nowhere. He knows it from history. That church will go zero, nowhere. We'll come together and it'll be just a, it'll be just a social gathering. No power, no presence. But that's not what we want. You know, anyone who believes in a supernatural God that exists and he definitely, absolutely, 100% exists. Amen? I'm more, I'm more convinced he exists than I exist. And we should all be that, that certain that he is who he is. And this word is more, more true than anything my thoughts can think of or any man can think of. No one can put together a book like this. That's why when atheists try to tell me that's written by a man, I'm like, wow, what a man. That man must be God. <laughs> I was just a man. Yeah, he was just a man. But he died and he rose again, that man. Because God is. It's, it's too evident. 
It's too evident. And now we, we serve the living God, not the God of the Muslims, who's the devil. Not the God of the Buddhists, who's nothing. As good as an atheist. We don't serve the God of the Hindus. We don't bow down the cows and let them walk into our lounge room and sit down if they want to. I'd be terrible in India. I'd get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> get the cow out of the room. What are you doing in the bathroom? We're not, that, we're not serving these gods. We're serving the living God who was raised to life from the dead. Just to prove. You know, Jesus just proved. Watch this, guys. I'm going to be raised to life after three days. He was probably saying that sort of. He probably, because he said it to his disciples a few times, didn't he? And he said to his disciples, hey, I'm going to be raised to life after three days. Then you'll realise that I'm the Son of Man and I'm the Son of God. Then, for some reason, they didn't get it. <laughs> it says they looking at him like, what? Raised to life. What does that mean? Is that a parable? Is he speaking as a parable? No, I'm telling you plainly. And they still didn't get it. See, you need the Holy Spirit to discern even that. The simplest thing. That's why when atheists hear the, the, the resurrection, it's just ludicrous. It's foolishness to them. Absolute foolishness. The cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, what is it? It's the glory of God because he proved that he's God. He was raised to life. So we serve a supernatural God that is going to raise us from the dead because we hold faith to him. We know that when we take our last breath, we're going to go straight to be with him and to be where he is. In my house are many mansions. And he's going there to prepare a place for us. People try to tell me there's no heaven. I had one lady telling me there was no heaven. Christians have been deceived. And I said, really? I'll stand with, you know, Leonard Ravenhill and A.W. Tozer and I'll stand with, you know, Paul and Peter and John and everyone <laughs> rather than stand with you in this warped belief. But she's still a Christian, but she doesn't believe in heaven. But is it true? Heaven is real. Yeah. He went there to prepare a place for us. So that we can, when we go, we go there to be with him. Now we serve the supernatural God. Now what I'm trying to get to is, is God all powerful? Does God do incredible things with people that he can trust? That with people that seek him with all their hearts, does God do amazing things with those kinds of people? If, if God sees a people just giving their all to him, does he not want to bless them? Has it not been proven over and over and over and over and over again in history, every account that I've ever read, when the people set their hearts like flint and say, nothing's going to stop me from seeking you. And I'm going to go through, like I said last week, I'm going to go through that desert place if I have to, to get to the promised land. And it might take a while. You know, uh, this guy Sam, he doesn't call himself a pastor, an elder in, in the church where Ben goes. Sam says to these people, just they just stuck with me. The church stuck with me every because they have it on a Tuesday. Every Tuesday night, they'll all come. The whole church would turn out. And he says they were so faithful, so faithful. They just stayed with him and they prayed together. And it was dry. He said there was dry patches where you, you, you go away and you nearly Satan nearly says to you, you know, how boring was that? Do you really want to do that again next week? That was boring. Who's ever been to a prayer meeting and walked away saying that was boring? Anyone? Come on, I'm going to be honest. 
Alright? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we've got we to go through that. It's like God saying, okay, you, you feel like you can do this. You, can, you really want to seek me. I can't test you just a little bit. I'll make it a little bit tough. I'll make it dry. See how they go. And I might give you four weeks straight. You know, I'm saying this now so that when we're as a church praying and we go through a dry patch, I want everyone to remember these words. God tests us. In, and this is a little thing, isn't it? Is that a little thing? Just a dry prayer meeting? Could be worse. Could be thrown into a jail cell and, you know, stuck in the deepest dungeon and left there for like 10 weeks straight with barely a scrap of food. So things could be worse than a dry prayer meeting, even though during the dry prayer meeting you probably don't think so. But things can be worse. But isn't that a small price to pay? To see God move. Who really wants God move to move in this church? Who really wants God to do something? Because I do. I, I know there's more. I know there's more. I've experienced, Vina and I, in, in the church we're, church we're at before, we experienced more. We saw things start to take place. And then it was cut off. And I won't go into the details of that. But it was cut off. But we saw a move of God beginning. And do you know how many churches have testified in Adelaide to have seen a move of God? I remember I went to a Tommy Teddy meeting and saw a powerful move of God for the few days he was here. So I've seen these glimpses, Vina, and I've seen glimpses. And I'm sure a number of you have seen glimpses through the time, but it's never become a citywide revival, has it? In the early days, did you know Adelaide had a citywide revival back when it was first founded? Did, who knew that? If you don't, there's a book called uh, Christian Heritage, our, our Australian Christian Heritage, by Cole Stringer, I think. And uh, he talks about the revival. Adelaide was the only city in Australia that was set up as a, was organised and set up as a Christian city. Um, there was a lot of German Christians here at the time, and that's where Handorf come from and all that. But anyway, they... There was such a great revival that the, the, the churches quickly, out, the people outgrew the churches, so they had to rapidly build more churches, which is why we, get, we got the nickname City of Churches, because there was just not enough churches for everybody, and they spread, the whole of Adelaide was spread with churches. And uh, they reckon at that time there was more kids in Sunday school than in actual school. The Sunday school was just pumping. With, with hundreds and thousands of children. So we had a revival and everyone was really, really praising and worshipping God. It was a real genuine move of the Spirit here. Now, it, it's like that happened and a lot of the names, you know, like Guja, Guja Street, he was a very, very honourable, holy man of God and there was many of the street names. I think Charles Sturt, I think, was a man of God. Don't quote me on that, but look it up. There's... Some of these uh, street names that we have in the city are after some very, very, you know, holy men who were very powerful in the spirit. And they were all part of that. So we've got this heritage, a Christian heritage, which is phenomenal in Adelaide. This is, in many respects, if they call it the city of churches, this is the city of revival. And I read a book, I've got a book in my library, it's called Digging Up the Wells of Revival. And this person um, looked into the history of certain uh, cities in America and found that there were certain cities that were founded in with a revival of Jesus Christ or that they had major revivals. 
And what his, this was all about was how to dig up that well of revival and get it happening again. Um, and when I read that, I thought, you know what, we have that here. We've got to open up the well of revival in Adelaide. It's already been done. It started with a revival. And that revival was powerful because the entire city of Adelaide was impacted. Who believes that God can impact the city? Put up your hand. I want to see some faith here. I believe it. I believe God can impact the city. I believe people can turn from sin and live for Christ. I believe God can break through atheism as easy as, you know, a clump of sand, just crushing a clump of sand and making it sand again. You know what I mean? It's that easy for God. Because atheism is, is, is flimsy. It's founded on nothing. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> founded on nothing. So all they need is a glimpse of the Saviour and they'll turn. There was a famous man of God, Elizabeth, you might know, because you've, you've read a lot of the books that I've read, and in, in England, and he was coming out of his church, and as he was coming out of the church, there was a man, a, a spruiking or whatever, uh, not spruiking, um, uh, basically teaching his atheism and trying to get converts to atheism. And, and he would uh, stand there and listen to him night after night speaking about atheism. And then he said to him, you know, come into the church. And this guy, you know, argued with him. And after a few days, he says, look, I've heard everything you've had to say. Why don't you come into a meeting? Anyway, this man who was talking about atheism finally came into the meeting and he preached. And he preached this powerful, powerful message. And this atheist obviously got a simple glimpse of Christ turned from his atheism in one church service. And this, this was when in, throughout England there was just moves of the Spirit. Moves of the Spirit always happening because there were some very, very wonderful men of God uh, throughout England, throughout Wales and, and Scotland and, and so on. And there was always these moves of the Spirit because, uh, you know, throughout the, the, the last few centuries as these men were seeking, seeking hard after God. But God wants a move of the Spirit. And you know why I know that? Because why wouldn't he? If you think about it, does God want people saved? Yes. How bad did he want people to get saved? He went to the cross. He went to the cross. That's how bad he wants it. Like if you're willing to die for something, you're, you're, you want it pretty bad. And if you're willing to be flogged and, and beaten and whipped and scourged, and which all those things are the same thing. If you're willing to go through all that and you're willing to get to carry a cross and go up to under the top of Golgotha and be hung on a cross, crucified on a cross. You want people to get saved. You know what? Christ wants us to want it as bad as he wants it. And I think when we want it as bad as he wants it, when we take up our cross and we say we want it that bad, do you think God's going to do it? Do you think he'll do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. He'll raise the dead. Literally, raise the dead. Give sight to the blind. Give hearing to the deaf. He'll do all these things. All we've got to do is do our part. You know, we've got to reach towards him. We've got to reach out with arms of faith. We've got to know that if the pastor is saying, this is what we've got to do, we've got to get to the prayer on Wednesday night, you guys, respond. Because that's where it's at. That's where it's at. I know it. That's the answer. That's the missing link in this church. And you know what? So far in the history of this church, we've never had it happen. Never have we seen the whole church turn up at a prayer meeting. In the history of this church, 
But the moment that changes, the moment that breaks, the moment the church goes, you know what? This is coming from God. This is not coming from Rome. Then we'll see something happen. Then there will be a move of the Spirit. But not necessarily in the first week. And don't lose heart. Might not happen in the second week. Might not happen in the third week. But don't lose heart. And what happens if it doesn't happen in the sixth month? Don't lose heart. What happens if it doesn't happen in the first year? Don't lose heart. Evan Roberts prayed, I think it was 18 years. 15 to 18 years. And then a move of God came. And it swept all of Wales into the kingdom. The whole of Wales. He didn't know, though, at the time, there was many other ministers around Wales also praying for the same move of the Spirit. And when it came, the whole of Wales got, to, got moved and, and to, gave their hearts to Jesus. I think only a very small percentage didn't turn to Jesus Christ. And then, guess what? England had moves of revival as well at the same time as a response. And guess what else? Azusa Street in America. Uh, Frank Parliament was communicating with Evan Roberts, sending letters, and he was sending letters back, and the move of the Spirit came there also. And then they say that it happened right throughout, like there was the Seelcott revival in, um, in India under John Hyde. That also occurred at that same time. Because, in, in essence, there was one man faithful, Evan Roberts. And then he got, when he, before the revival, he went into his church, and he said, church, you've got to pray, and the whole church turned out. All the youth and then all the elders and everyone else started to come and they all started to commit and then in a very short time a move of the Spirit occurred. And this is what they said in Queensland, a move of the Spirit is occurring. Now God, I, guys, I could get up here and I can just preach another sermon and everyone go home. That was nice. Or I can get up here and say, guys, let's turn them on. Amen. Let's get real. You know, do you want head knowledge? What do you want? A move of the Spirit. You know, head knowledge is good. It's good to have a bit of knowledge, isn't it? But what, what good is it if we don't use it? What good is it if you can come up and discourse on prayer week after week after week and, and you know, say the most incredible things about prayer that you can't pray? You know, what use is it if we can, you know, talk about all the wonderful, you know, uh, things in the Psalms Yet we never apply any of it into our life. And this is really back to where we, we were talking with uh, in the book of James. Now just to finish this one screen. Psalm 34, 13. Let's turn there. Who's getting stirred up today? I, I think I am. Is it good to get stirred up? Right, Psalm 34, verse 13. And it says this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. So there's another thing. Lies is another thing that we shouldn't be speaking. And keep our tongues from evil in whatever form of evil that is. And I won't go into that right now, but let's go to Psalm 39.1. This is David and he said this. I like David. Awesome man of God. He said this. He said, I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. We've got to put a muzzle. Who knows what a muzzle is? Yeah. See those greyhounds? 
you know, you, you can't take a greyhound in the park to have a run like all the other dogs because it'll bite everybody. So they put a muzzle, a muzzle to see. Is that a muzzle? I think that's a muzzle. That's yeah. A muzzle. yeah. And some, some criminals have to get them wrapped around their mouths because they'll bite people. You know? You know you can bite people without biting them. You just bite them with words. Yes. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break bones, but names will never hurt you. That's, yeah, that's a lie. Names hurt you. Don't they? How many kids have been, you know, committed suicide because people have typed bad things about them and said terrible things and they go and commit suicide? Words are, I'd rather get a punch in the mouth than you know, get a told how bad I am as a, you know, horrible, downgrading thing, you know. So please don't say nasty things to me. Just hit me. Come up. Rob, I've got something to say to you. Wallop! Thanks, man. Let's feel better. Knock my little fluffy thing off. Yeah, names hurt you. And Christians, should Christians be hurting each other? No. Do Christians hurt each other? Yeah. Who's been in churches where Christians hurt each other big time? Yeah. Should that be occurring? No. We've got to watch it because it happens. And uh, we've had some people come into this church and the first thing out of their mouth when I've met them is an offensive statement. And I'm like, oh, you're not going to go very far into this church. Like, you've just, first thing that you've said to me is an offensive thing. And I'm thinking, gee, I don't know if he's going to be well received not because we don't want to receive him it's because he's coming in to be rude and offensive mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we've got to be careful some of, like I've said I've said it just before some of the rudest people I've ever met have been in churches mm-hmm. yeah I've met some like, incredibly rude incredibly rude people every time I'd say hello to them they would say something offensive to me and make me sort of go like this and sort of go okay yeah no worries cheers walk away <laughs> Yeah, and should that be? You know what? If I was the pastor of those churches, I'd be preaching this sort of stuff to them so that that person would hopefully get woken up and he wouldn't get judged by God. Because if you die living that kind of false Christian life, they, you know, does the word say in Matthew seven twenty one that many will come before him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and be cast from his presence? If you haven't read that, Matthew, write it down. Matthew 7, 21. Many people are going to come in and say, Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord, and will not enter. They will not enter because they did not do the will of the Father. That's a scary thing when you consider how many rude Christians there can be in the world. We need correction. Amen. Why do we come to church? We come to become more like him. Now, are we like him right now? Are we? Not fully. There's elements of it, isn't there? But there's other elements that aren't like him. Now, what have we got to do with those other elements that aren't like him? We've got to cut them off. We've got to, we've got to resist them and, and all sorts of things. We've got to give up those things that aren't of Christ. Now, if I don't preach like this, then how are you going to have the revelation, unless it's just a, a personal revelation God gives you, as a church, you've got to hear it. And I'm not saying it to any single person you know, I'm not saying, Yako, you know, you've got to deal with this, man. You know, I'm not saying that because I don't know what you've got to deal with. I look at you and I just see saints. <laughs> Angels. Angels. Yeah. So angelic, you nearly hover. <laughs> but if you, 
there's elements in you that aren't of Christ, then you've got to get rid of those things. Because we should be coming closer, getting closer and closer, more like him, more like him, more like him. Now, he's perfection. And you know, like I've used this analogy before, when you play piano, so I teach piano, when I'm teaching piano, I'm bringing students closer and closer and closer and closer to perfection. But they never reach perfection. They just strive for perfection. Because if they weren't striving for perfection, they wouldn't get better. So I always encourage them, you can do this, you can do that. If you did this, this would change that, and then that would be better, and you just sort of you build them up like that. But at different ages and different levels of ability, they can only get so far. And you remember I did that fur release demonstration? That you have the a perfection for a, a child of two years on the piano, and then a perfection of a child of five years, and then a perfection of a, someone of 10 or 15 years, and the different levels that the same piece can be played in. And uh, so... This is what we've got to do. We've always got to be striving for perfection. And now when you're aiming to be like Jesus Christ, what are you doing? You're striving for perfection. And I believe prayer is the thing that is going to change a lot of hearts in this church. Who feels it when you leave the, the prayer meeting? Something's happened. You know, you, sometimes you might leave the prayer meeting feeling disturbed. And you've got to go home and pray about it. And you might not even be able to articulate with words what is going on. But there's something's being stirred up. Amen? Something's getting stirred up and it happens. And it's, this is the thing. This church is, is going to be made or broken by the prayer meeting. It comes down to that. It really does. God's made it real clear. He says, it's very simple. It's very simple. You want a revival. You want to see God moving in this church, you want to see people getting saved, you want to see all these things, it's very, very simple, pray. Just pray, that's it. Don't have to hold another meeting, you don't have to do you know, masses of Bible studies, because we do greater Bible studies than most Bible studies anyway, don't we? How many scriptures do we normally look at in this church? Heaps, we go through lots of scripture, amen? Got to stay close to the word. You know, Psalm 141.3, let's go there. 141 verse 3. And it says, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. So now he's asking that God set a guard over his mouth. Could we ask for that? Lord, set a guard over my mouth. I'll muzzle it. You set a guard over it. You know, I'll resist every, everything that comes up and builds, um, you know, bellows up inside. 141, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So now we're asking for God to keep watch. So what that means is you're going to feel conviction when you say something you shouldn't say. You're going to get a strong conviction. You're going to get this sense of, I shouldn't have done that. Anyone ever had that happen? Yeah? I leave church. Uh, I, I say things sometimes, I think, why did I say that? It was so worldly of me. You know, i just trying to blend in in the conversation. I say something as stupid as what's getting said. Just to sort of blend in. <laughs> And uh, we've, got to, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We've got to be, become smarter than that. Either just don't say anything. Muzzle. Just, you know. I think Stephen was saying that in his workplace, there's people that say, you know, stuff gets said in his workplace. And he's like, he just has to just sort of just about disassociate. Just like turn off nothing. I'm not going to take part in that. You know. And it can seem in the eyes of the world, it can seem rude, can't it, to do that. Yeah. They can think, oh, what's wrong with him? 
well, if you stop swearing like a sailor, maybe I can hang around you. Mm. If you stop telling those dirty jokes all the time, I'll have a chat with you. You know, you feel like saying that, don't you? When you're at work. Ephesians 4.29. All right. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs and that it may benefit those who listen. So no unwholesome talk should come out of your mouths. Go to Ephesians 5.4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So no obscenity or foolish talk. And then go to 1 Peter 3.10. 1 Peter 3.10. Who whatever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. So if you want, if you love life, and if you want to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. That's it. So this is just the one element of, re- of being religious. And is religion a good word? Yes. Yeah, I'll say it now only because it's, it's been a word that's been you know, looked down upon for so long. I've seen it over and over again. But we are to be a religious people. We are to be a disciplined people. We are to keep watch over, or we ask God to keep watch over the door of our lips. We have to be very careful what we say and how we say it. And we've got to be careful so that we, the, the Lord says that the Spirit desires things contrary to the flesh and the flesh desires something contrary to the Spirit. And that, why is that? So that you do not do what you want. So you don't do what you want. There's a catchphrase from the 60s, was do what thou wilt. Do what you want. Do whatever feels good. If it feels good, do it. Who's heard these statements? Yeah. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. Yeah. You know? And there's hundreds of songs written with that catchphrase. But it's a lie. You can't do whatever feels good. Some people find it, get, you know, get enjoyment killing things. Because it feels good. So you don't do what you want. There's got to be control. And that's why people are so anti-authority now. That's why the world's in chaos now. Because they've just got, you know, who is that policeman that told me what I should and shouldn't do? And then you get the policemen that are corrupt doing what they shouldn't do. You know, I remember when I was a kid, this is before I became a Christian, we used to score drugs from two off-duty policemen. In a nightclub, they had the best drugs because they were drug-bust policemen. I'm talking just marijuana. I'm not talking harder drugs. I'm just letting you know that they were policemen that we used to score from. They were supposed to be protecting us from people like themselves. <laughs> you know, they're supposed to be busting themselves. Wouldn't that look strange? They pull a gun out, <laughs> throw it, give me all your drugs. You know, you're going to jail. That's what should be happening. And it's not. So this world is upside down. Amen. This world is upside down. It's in chaos. And in the midst of this, we've got to find the right way of living. And we've got to live according to this way. And we've got to stick to that way. Amen. And again, I will emphasize, it comes back to prayer. Get close to God. Walk close to God. Be in his presence continuously and unite with this church so that this church can grow stronger and stronger. I tell you, Satan can't stop a church that prays. But if he can stop you from praying, he can stop the church. 
It's like this. You're, this church is a Mack truck, but the engine doesn't work. Once this engine works, we get it turning over, we get it humming. Satan can still stop it because it hasn't moved yet. But once it starts to move, it's hard to stop a Mack truck, isn't it? Especially if you're just a little old Satan. You know, the truck will just go straight over the top of you. You know what I'm saying? So we've got to move. We've got to, we've got to get together and seek the Lord. And you know what? We all pray different prayers. You know, I've got a feeling that some people, oh, I don't like how this person prays or that person prays. Who cares? You know, really? You know, we've got to get beyond that. We're not infants, are we, in Christ? You know, and then other people won't come be, oh, because I don't like I don't like to pray out loud in front of people. Well then don't pray out loud in front. Just be there. You know what I mean? We move together in this. And it, it's all about that. It's all about that. Not everyone prayed on, on um, Wednesday night, but they prayed. We're not saying not everyone prayed, not everyone prayed out loud, but they prayed. You know, because it's just, you know, you can be just sitting there just quietly, the whole meeting, just going, Amen, Amen, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. You know what I mean? And you're praying and you're praying deeply and, and this, the lift, the, the spiritual climate of that meeting is lifting because you're there doing that. Does that make sense? Because it is a daunting thing to pray out loud in front of people. But you know what's funny is I've, um, I remember Sharon came to the very first prayer meeting. And she said, now, don't expect me to pray out loud. And I said, oh, I won't. <laughs> would never expect that. She said, good. Anyway, she was one of the first people to pray out loud. Because <laughs> God just got a hold of her. <laughs> and she couldn't resist. She had to voice the prayer. So that was, a, that was a beautiful thing to watch. And I've had other people come into the prayer meeting and say, oh, I've never prayed in a prayer meeting before. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do. And I said, oh, that's all right. Just, just, just sit there. Just agree with us. And then that person ended up praying the longest prayers you can imagine. <laughs> Thinking you've never prayed in a prayer meeting. You sound like a seasoned professional, you know. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about that just coming together, uniting together. And, it's, and, and the church as one in its prayer will be unstoppable. Will be unstoppable. And, and all I'm saying is, please, guys, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. You know, we've got a short life here and you don't want to get to 80 years old and go, gee, I wish I responded to Rob and, and uh, come along and let's and gave it a go. Because you don't want to go another, you know, 40 years of your life and just be in a mundane old church. I'm not saying we're a mundane old church, but you don't want to just be church as usual. Because you know what happens to people that have church as usual for many, 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 many years? Eventually they stop going to church altogether. Because they think it's, well, I'm, I could just watch a YouTube video and get more out of it. I'm getting emails all the time from America. Got one last night. The lady saying, I don't go to church anymore. I just listen to your sermons. And she started right back at my older sermon and is just working her way through. And I'm thinking, well, that's good. I'm glad she's listening to the sermon, but it's bad that she's given up on church. And then she tells me the reason she gave up, gave up on church was because of the drums came into the church. Not Ricardo, he's not, he wasn't the drummer. See, if Ricardo went to their church, he should have been fine with the drums. Because isn't he a beautiful drummer? He just, yes, just yes. You, you know, I know a good drummer when I don't notice 
that happening, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's how it's sort of starting to sound, which is uh, starting. We're only young still as a band, so please forgive us for any wrong notes. Or stuff. But we're moving along, aren't we? Yeah. And you're doing a beautiful job on that bass. You're carrying it today. Um, and where was I? Yeah, so she, she gave up on church a year and a half ago to listen to YouTube videos. But is, is that right? No, it's not the same. It's, it's, see, church is a community thing. It's a community event. Christianity is a community event you do together. You don't do it on your own sitting in your living room. You do it together. You move together as a people. And that's why the prayer of the church is so important because it builds hearts. It unites the church. And it gives us a, a, a wonderful appreciation for each other. And then we move together as a church. And you know, a church that does that can do anything. In God. And God would use a church like that. Amen? Yes. Yeah, alright. I think I've hit that home, yeah? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I set those last few scriptures in about one minute flat. Very quickly. <laughs> yeah, very quickly. Alright, so thank you, God. Thank you for this um, opportunity to preach to these wonderful people. And Lord, uh, I just pray that your spirit just continues to stir us and continues to move in us and, and, and uh, calls us to want to really... Uh, uh, you know, in, in one one element, just to really give ourselves over to you in, in with all our hearts, Lord, and, and just to um, seek to live as close to you as possible, seek to be like you as much as possible, Lord. Help us to cut off all those things in us which is not of you, all those things that we uh, devote our time to, uh, maybe put too much emphasis upon, Lord, things that we do and things that we say and and things that we look at, and all sorts of things, Lord. All these things, help us to realise, and may you give us a spiritual revelation of it. If we don't see it, if we don't see the things that are holding us back in our Christian walk, I pray you reveal them to each and every one of us so that we can deal with them. And give us the discipline and the religious heart to be able to cut those things off and to cut them off for good. Because your word says if we resist the enemy, he will flee. And so help us to resist the enemy and all his schemes, all the things that he tries to do to corrupt us as a, as a people. And I pray also, Lord, that you will move each and every heart here to commit uh, as far as it is possible uh, with them to uh, getting together as a, as a church to pray, to pray. And I know, Lord, since doing it, that my own prayer life is, is getting stronger and stronger. So help us, Lord, to realise the need that, it, that you need each and every one of us to uh, really come along and, and, and really commit to this. So, and, and just to, Lord, in a sense, give it a go. Because, Lord, we want to see more happening in this church. We want to see more souls impacted. We want to see the gospel spread throughout our city. And, Lord, if, if it is possible, we know it is, Lord, let a revival come and move thousands of people to turn to you with all their heart. And so, Lord, I pray all these things in your wonderful name and I just pray that you help us now to uh, just to work out what's been said today in this in this uh, sermon and help us to get stronger and stronger now uh, as we apply it into our life. And I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.